Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. As the Olympics in China carry on as if nothing were the matter, the eyes of the world, and surely the major power satellites, are fixed on Russian force concentrations on Ukraine's borders. While the United States is busy trying to construct a united front against Russian aggression, and Europe desperately flails about in search of something resembling unity of purpose, one country, quite far away, has also been observing these events, with increasing concern, India. What would the consequences of a Russian move on Ukraine, of whatever nature, be for India's strategic position, in light of its close ties to the Russian Federation? And what consequences have there already been in terms of India's growing troubles with its uncomfortably large neighbor to the north, China? With me to discuss all this and more is Professor Rajagopalan of Jawaharlal Nehru University. Professor Rajagopalan teaches international relations theory and national and international security and is the author of a number of monographs and papers on topics as varied as the Indian Army's experience in counterinsurgency and the theory and practice of nuclear weapons in South Asia. Professor, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me on. So last week, you, you published a very interesting opinion piece in The Print, which for the listeners is, is an Indian newspaper, and which was titled as follows. Here's why the India-Russia rift will deepen with the Ukraine crisis. It's foolish thinking otherwise. And it just so happens that a couple of weeks ago, I had recorded an episode with Nandanuni Krishnan precisely on Russia-India relations. So that immediately caught my attention. But before we get into the argument you lay out in the piece, let me, uh, let me ask you what your sense is of where things stand at the moment. We're recording this on February 17th. Um, in the newspapers this morning, there are conflicting reports about Russian troop movements, which is perhaps not surprising. Um, uh, the Russians are claiming that they've pulled back some, at least some of their troops from the so-called exercises in Belarus. The Biden administration is saying that hasn't happened. In fact, I think it was 7,000 troops extra, so to speak, have been, uh, have been brought to, to the border. Um, give us your sense of where, where things are at the moment. Thank you, David. Uh, well, I am, uh, you know, uh, I'm also watching this closely, but it is difficult, of course, to make sense of what uh, what exactly is going on. Uh, unless you can peer into Putin's minds, we don't know mind, we don't know exactly what he's planning. But as of now, from what I understand, uh, I'm reading the same reports, I suppose, that you are, that uh, it seems to be more of uh, shifting the forces around but not really away from Ukraine's borders. And so mm -hmm. uh, it does still seem to be a, you know, quite a tense situation in terms of uh, not uh, lack of certainty about what uh, Russia is planning. I think uh, part of the problem, uh, in addition to, the, uh, in addition to uh, not knowing what exactly uh, Mr. Putin is up to, is also that I think uh, he was surprised at the level of uh, consensus in the West and at the unity in the West in terms of both NATO powers as well as others uh, in in sort of responding to Russia. I think that has taken mm -hmm. uh, Moscow by surprise. I think uh, so they are trying to uh, probably figure out how exactly to uh, respond to 
the Western response, I think. So it looks like they might be reconsidering, but we don't know for sure, of course, what that reconsideration would be, because obviously I think for Putin also there are some costs to simply withdrawing. I think that is uh, without some sort of a victory, without right. some sort of achieving something. So he cannot entirely do that, but uh, I suspect that he sees also that the response, if he does do something, might be quite severe. And so I think he's kind of um, caught between a rock and a hard place in that sense. And so I think uh, there might be some consideration about how to get out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we don't know. I mean, I think the next one week is going to be quite critical, uh, as everybody says. It is, uh, but clearly the, uh, the forces are not uh, being pulled back from Ukraine's border. That, that much seems to be very clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into the uh, the question of what what the what the possible outcomes, uh, both in the in the medium term and in the, in the long term, could be. Let's let's dive into the the argument you, you laid out in in the piece I mentioned in the introduction. You wrote that it would be foolish to allow uh, a, to allow Russia a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. So in 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 other words, to in a sense capitulate to to the uh, to the, the demands they made. And I happen to wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with mm -hmm. that. But um, explain for our listeners, if you would, why why this would be unwise. Yeah, my sense uh, is that uh, my I, I was saying that it was foolish, not in terms of the West allowing uh, Russia a zone of influence. I think my sense or my argument is that it is foolish on India's part because there has been a there's been a sort of a parallel debate going on in India about who's to blame and uh, mostly a lot of people blaming the West for what Russia is doing and about, uh, I think it parallels to some extent some arguments uh, in the West uh, by some scholars uh, which suggest that Russia is simply responding to the insecurity that it feels and that uh, this should have been predictable and uh, the West should not have sort of pushed NATO further to towards Russia after 19 after the Soviet collapse and so there is a parallel argument taking place in India about Russia and a lot of blame on the West for uh, essentially creating the situation so my point was my argument was about in that context uh, basically my point was uh, that uh, it is foolish to expect that the uh, that the West NATO and uh, the United States will allow Russia such a zone of, uh, you know, such a zone, cordon uh, uh, sanitaire, as it were, around Russia's borders in the in towards the west, uh, towards in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, so it's not likely sphere of influence is not likely, and so India shouldn't count on that. And so there was this whole argument about how Russia should be allowed uh, a sphere of influence, and many other people because that that uh, in India that uh, uh, their argument is being uh, being uh, touted by folks who are citing western scholars who make the same argument about how mm -hmm. um how the you know how it, the one way out of the crisis would be for russia to have a sphere of influence and my point was that the same people who are arguing for russia to have a to be allowed a sphere of influence are also the same ones who are arguing that uh, the united states should be should allow china a sphere of influence in asia which would of course come at india's cost right for this for the same reasons right for the same reasons, exactly. So, as pointing to the dangers of that kind of an of that kind of argument, uh, if you sort of uncritically take that kind of argument, I was sort of you know so, and I was also pointing to the fact that these are not things that 
you know, spheres of influence are not things that states do uh, as a way of preventing conflict. It is basically sometimes mm. it happens that they don't have any any capacity to prevent that, as as happened, for example, in the after the end of the Second World War, when Russian forces were already in occupation of Central Europe, and you know you had to go to war uh, to get Russia to go back. So the the countries were not going to go to war. So it might be a fight accompli, but it is not something that states willingly allow other great powers to do. Great powers would not willingly allow other great powers spheres of influence. So I was trying to push back against arguments uh, in Delhi that Russia should be the best should allow Russia a sphere of influence in in you know in Ukraine or wherever else in Central Europe as a way of uh, finding a way out of the conflict. Uh, I thought that was. Polish because the next step for that would be the China is allowed a sphere of influence in Asia. Yes, yes, that's that's very interesting. And you point out in the piece that oddly enough, it's the so-called realists, right, who who have put yeah. forward this argument that you know, well, after all, you you know, it's it's not so it's not so illegitimate of Russia to expect a sphere of influence and and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so on and so forth. I think that says a lot. Interest, uh, by the way, about the the concepts themselves that are used in international relations. But exactly. Uh, perhaps we we can get to that into that a little bit later. Let's let's bring in um, China in, in, into the picture. Uh, one of the one of the points you you make precisely in the piece is that no matter how this plays out, actually Russia is likely in the long term to feel even more insecure. Could you flesh that out a little bit for for our listeners and and explain how this is likely to color the the relationship that Russia has with China? Yeah, I uh, I was uh, I I didn't see how Russia would be more secure after this particular venture, in the sense that if it succeeded, I was pointing to the fact that uh, the West would become very united and NATO, other countries might join NATO, um, and uh, Western sort of uh, uh, unity in the face of uh, such uh, Soviet aggression or Russian aggression would actually make Russia feel even more insecure. I mean, it could, mm -hmm. one could very easily see the possibility of uh, medium range or intermediate range missiles being moved into, uh, into uh, border uh, areas uh, of NATO that would threaten, uh, threaten Moscow. Um, so, and, and, if it, uh, and if it didn't succeed, of course, as it looks like right currently, uh, Moscow was going to feel, Putin was going to feel even more insecure. So either way, I didn't see a way in which Russia could get out of this conflict, out of this sort of crisis, uh, without feeling, you know, without feeling more insecure. So basically, right. this is you know, either it wins, uh, whether it wins in Ukraine or not, uh, it is going to feel more insecure. So and greater insecurity uh, in Russia would mean that Russia would be even more uh, uh, leaning even more towards uh, China because it has sort of that is a, that is the single factor that is driving. Uh, Russia towards China, and so I expected that uh, I expect that um, that a more insecure Russia would become even more dependent on China, mm -hmm. even more beholden to China, and that would obviously have consequences for India. So, so that's a that's a and you know this has been happening for a while. It's not it's not entirely new. Uh, this was happening even uh, since 2014 uh, after the last uh, the Crimean crisis. And, uh, you know, that, you know, even before that, but definitely after that, uh, we see that uh, greater uh, Russian uh, leaning towards uh, China. Mm. And uh, that is, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process that has been underway for some time. 
Um, so it's not something something new, but I think it is definitely high time that India recognized that. So this raises a very interesting question for me because I think your your argument is very is very persuasive, and it's clear that the the Russia China India triangle, so to speak, is is very unstable, and India has a lot to fear from essentially Russia becoming a kind of Chinese poodle, uh, which it already is to to to, to some extent. Explain, give us, give us a sense of what the debates are like in New Delhi. In other words, why is it that India has has trouble, as it were, aligning itself more closely with with the U.S. or at least understanding that, as you as you point out, in you know, Russia's moves in 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 Western and Central Europe are um, are likely to have very negative consequences um, for India. Where where is the resistance to that realization, so to speak? I think the resistance is uh, coming more in the public debate and it is not necessarily entirely reflective of what is going on in the government. I mean, I do not have uh, internal sources of, uh, in, I'm not sort of revealing any secrets as such, but right, right. Uh, we do see uh, greater uh, uh, Indian efforts to find uh, ways away from its dependence on Russia. There are things that uh, India is doing both in terms of its weapons. We are sort of uh, diversifying and very deliberately diversifying uh, mm -hmm. on the one hand, with the exception of the uh, S-400 deal that we did a couple of years back. Uh, we haven't really purchased anything major uh, from Russia in a few years, even though overall uh, it still remains, India's dependence still remains quite fairly high. There is uh, definitely uh, some diver diversification of India's India's uh, weaponry uh, away from uh, away from Russia. Uh, in dollar terms, it's not that easily visible. Uh, you know, definitely, I mean, it's still about fifty percent still going to Russia, but that's a lot of it is smaller weapons, uh, you know, mm. and and uh, spare parts and stuff like that. And so, but nevertheless, I mean, so I think uh, I think at the at the government level, there's definitely uh, at least some attention being paid to that. And uh, we also saw last year there was a little bit of a uh, careful between uh, when Lavrov uh, talked about Indo-Pacific in Delhi and he was very critical of the Quad and there was a lot of pushback from the government. Uh, so I think, but the, but uh, there is a, a sense in Delhi, at least in the public debate, um, uh, that Russia is a true front uh, because Russia has stood by India for uh, for decades and that Russia has been willing to supply India with uh, even critical technologies like nuclear submarines. And the nuclear submarine issue constantly comes up mm. that uh, nobody was willing to supply us with nuclear submarines and Russia was the only country that allowed us that technology. Uh, but there is, I think, a deeper uh, reason for it is also that there is continuing discomfort with the United States and with the West, uh, especially with the United States. Uh, mainly for reasons that have to do with uh, cultural issues, uh, with issues of uh, domestic politics. Um, there is obviously, you, you will find criticism in the West about uh, India's democracy, right. uh, its illiberalism, things like that. And even if it is not from the government, uh, and it is often not from the government, not from the US government or anything like that, but mm -hmm. it could be New York Times or Washington Post or some newspaper or some commentator or so on and so forth who makes those comments. And there's immediately a, quite a, quite an active sort of response to that. And Yeah, you're definitely not going to get those comments from Russia, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. that they, they, you're not going to get those comments from Russia, even though 
uh, surprisingly, over the last uh, couple of years, there is a greater Russian media criticism of uh, India also, and including a recent um, um, uh, TV channel story right. about on uh, Kashmir, right? about uh, Kashmir, and and that kind of created a bit of a uh, a bit of a problem in India. But by but by and large, you don't you're not likely to get any of that from uh, from uh, from Russia. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and there is a, you know, it, like I said, it's usually not the government, uh, U.S. government, or, but occasionally there is. Like last week, there was a, uh, there was a statement about uh, India's India's uh, treatment of its minorities, and so occasionally there is something that like that, which sort of uh, again, it's not a central part of the of the U.S. government. It's not, it's yeah. not really. Uh, but you know, it, it, it all it takes is some comment like that for again uh, Indian anxieties to rise. And so I think that is a that's a long-standing concern about uh, uh, the United States about uh, so that that uh, about the West in general, but the United States in particular. I mean, we also have similar concerns about Canada, and you know, there is a there mm. is a there is a sensitivity to that uh, that is very high in India, and um, that that is partly the reason for um, for that discomfort with the United States. So I think it is more that discomfort. That uh, about uh, with the United States than um, any particular closeness to Russia, even though that, like I said, that historical legacy is one part of it. Uh, but the other part of it is uh, is also that uh, there is some concern about uh, U.S. commitment. I mean that you know, with the, would the U.S. be a true ally and the U.S. has abandoned allies and things like that. Mm. Which is also at some levels fairly silly, but nevertheless that that uh, that concern remains um, because I I, mean, I I generally find India to be a lot more uh, uncommitted than unreliable, others yeah. are, but <laughs> yeah. unreliable in many respects than others are. But you know that that uh, but these are these are the kind of concerns that you find expressed uh, in uh, in Delhi in the public debate at least. Right. Yeah. That's 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 extremely interesting and. Uh... I mean, my my kind of initial reaction to that, and perhaps you share this, is that in a way that's very short-sighted, right? I mean, with the Chinese all over Ladakh, I'm not sure yeah. what more it what more it would take, right, for yeah. for the Indian policymaking elite to understand that you know you have to. India is a relatively weak country, right? So it doesn't have great choices. It has a bunch of bad choices, but you have to exactly. you have to deal with um you know with the neighbors with the neighbors you have. Yeah. Um. Let me, uh, let me quote something you write in the conclusion to your piece. Um, you write the following. A China-dominated Asian order, which will be the consequence of Moscow's efforts to undermine the US, can hardly be conducive to India's strategic autonomy. Refusing to deal with the deepening chasm in India-Russia relations will not make it go away. It will only make the fall that much harder. Um, I think that's, that's a very nice summary of, of the argument. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what what dealing with that chasm in India-Russia relations would or could concretely look like beyond uh, reducing the, the arms dependence, which, which we've already mentioned. Could, for example, or should India, for example, become more vocal about the security aspects of the Quad? Should it, should it look for ways to find some sort of accommodation with Pakistan to at least keep that front? Uh, a little bit quieter? Should it seek more explicit, more uh, closer ties with the U.S.? Give us your your sense of what India's options uh, are at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, greater security cooperation is what I would sort of uh, focus on. Um, 
we have uh, india has been doing uh, large numbers of military exercises with uh, quad countries and with the united states i think india does more military exercises with the united states than with anybody else but uh, this remains at a fairly even though it's a large numbers of military exercises there is no common planning no common um, there, there is the security cooperation remains fairly limited i mean what, normally right. what you mean by security cooperation for example the recent uh, japan australia agreement is uh, allowing forces to be based in each other's countries and co- discussing common plans and discussing common contingencies and you mm-hmm. know common training so it, go, it goes a lot a lot further than just logistical arrangements right exactly it it goes much further than just logistical arrangements and it goes much further than just um just having some military exercises where uh, it's everything is scripted that you know it's not mm-hmm. it's not really there isn't there is no depth to this kind of irrespective of how many how many exercise, exercises you do military exercises you do there is no depth to that exercise and so i think it is something somewhere uh, along those lines is what i would uh, i would sort of suggest uh, that is that's on the us uh, india part of it uh, but also in the quad i think uh, at, at, to, to a large extent the quad seems to be the pace of the quad seems to be set by india because mm. um, originally the reason for the quad not being even called the quad i mean india was very reluctant to call it the quadrilateral security dialogue Mm-hmm. uh so we used to have this cumbersome india australia japan us group <laughs> name all the countries right <laughs> name all the countries just calling the quad and then after the 2020 ladakh crisis we we became suddenly quite much more forthcoming and therefore the quad became much more active and now once again uh, it seems to be we are sort of again for reasons that i can't entirely fathom it seems to be again slowing down and moving into you know areas other areas i mean there are some mm-hmm. areas in the, the if you look at the last statement uh, the quad formants statement there are some interesting and important areas but um, uh, but it, it doesn't simply go far enough i mean i think uh, i think uh, the quad does need to focus on issues uh, where they coordinate responses to things like uh, trade course course of trade practices by china but i think th- that is that seems to have been something that australia put in there rather than really mm. something that uh, everybody sort of jointly came up with but i think a, a lot of that uh, the quad has to go for a lot further even if it is not jointly in terms of military but coordinating some kind of military responses coordinating um, intelligence sharing coordinating on uh, equally importantly on policy issues on sort of political issues diplomatic issues in terms of what china does in various in various forums they could coordinate even in the who despite the fact that india was uh, uh, was leading who's uh, board uh, 2020 i think uh, we did nothing in terms of um, uh, even pushing for a greater investigation a more better investigation within uh, who mm-hmm. on the origins of uh, on the origins of um, the covid and so you know so there has to be a little bit better coordination uh on all of these issues on diplomatic issues and military issues on intelligence issues and as of now uh, going into a lot of other areas like vaccines and things like that they are import i'm not saying they are not important but they are really really very baseline yeah they're side shows right they are side shows and so i think they they need to step that up so uh, because the court space uh, seems to be being set by india because others are anyway military allies and so they don't really need the quad mm-hmm. um it is kind of uh it's 
seems that the slowing down to some extent may be may be something uh, that Delhi desires or uh, that Delhi wants or they don't want to go at a faster pace. So I'm, I'm you know, in that sense, I, I would that um, cooperation in, in, you know, as I pointed out in the article, um, why an Indian official even said that the score is not a secure dialogue, right. which to me is, is just uh, unbelievable. But yeah, it's bizarre because, as you point out, it's it's in the name itself. So <laughs> it's in the name itself. I mean, the call out of security dialogue, yeah. and that's obviously the spirit animating it. I mean, it's that's obvious. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that reluctance to engage in that kind of deeper cooperation, I think. So so on the U.S. front, again, security cooperation much more, much greater. Uh, on the Quad front, I think coordination, if not actual cooperation, I think even coordinating responses on. You know, if one country is 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 targeted for trade coercion, then I think others should sort of stand up and say that we will not sort of you know we will coordinate our policy to respond to that instead of letting let's say an Australia or a New Zealand or a South Korea or a Norway handle that kind of um, situation by itself. So I think uh, I think that kind of coordination is I, I think at least a basic minimum starting point uh, instead of what uh, we are doing. I think on the other side, I mean, even the U.S. and others can do a lot more in terms of, uh, you know, that we talked about the India's military dependence. I think um, there also needs to be a greater effort. I'm not sure exactly how that can be done, but I think there can be a greater effort to uh, help India build its own defense industries. And so mm -hmm. uh, even if India doesn't necessarily want to buy Western equipment or at least American equipment, um, uh, allowing or, or helping India to develop its own uh, military industries. Uh, it's got, India has got a very large industry, but it's very, very poor in terms of technological development. It's it, it's something that uh, I think that again can help reduce that dependence. That dependence again will take some time to reduce, but I think mm -hmm. it will uh, once some start has been made somewhere. Yes. Um, let me let me ask you this this final question. What do you think explains New Delhi's uh, reluctance to call things by their name in Ladakh? I mean, obviously, the, the 2020 yeah. Galwan crisis kind of, it, it was so blatant and undeniable that, you know, the, India, in a sense, had to react. But even since then, it seems to me that there have been, again, attempts to kind of somewhat minimize the issue or claim that they're not really there or, uh, you know, there, there have been to some extent some, some disengagements. But what, what, what's your sense of um, where, how this is going gonna, is gonna to play out and, and what kind of the... The, the strategy is at the moment in New Delhi. Yeah, I, I, that is a bit of a puzzle, even sitting in Delhi, as to why India is being, um, you know, why it is being so careful in terms sort of naming or, or what China is doing. I mean, even if you look at the more recent statements, uh, it's uh, that Mr. Jayshankar, the foreign minister, made. It is about China um, massing forces. I mean, that is not the problem. China massing force on its own territories. Okay. Yes, that violates some of the agreements that India and China have had, but that is not yeah. the primary problem, obviously. Yeah, if they were on their side of the border, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be better. Yeah, exactly. That would, that would be, they, you know, they can mass all they want, but yeah. uh, clearly uh, there have been, um, uh, you know, uh, Chinese forces that come in and we have lost some territory, obviously. Um, uh, areas where we used to patrol till 2019 and uh, not no longer able to patrol and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think uh, it is difficult to. Um, it is. I, I'm not. I can't make up my mind about whether this is because uh, the assumption is that um, diplomacy uh, it can do quiet diplomacy and therefore it doesn't help 
to uh, say things openly and you know create problems for china to withdraw therefore i mean that that's generally been the strategy that the indian foreign ministry has had which is to say mm. that we will engage in quiet diplomacy but uh, we will not put china on the spot which will make it more difficult for china to withdraw i mean that might there might be some logic to that uh, but the other domestic political logic also possibly is works in that uh, works also which is that you know uh, the government doesn't want to uh, want to acknowledge that it has uh, that it kind of lost territory right uh, yeah. that's other possible uh, possible reason because then that might require india to take action uh, or lose face i mean so yeah. so there i think there may be a partly a diplomatic um, rationale for it and partly a domestic political rationale for it um, I, that is all sort of pointing in the same direction of minimizing some of these things um, so i'm not sure exactly which of these predominate but uh, i think mm-hmm. it's probably a combination of both well, we'll have to uh, wrap things up there. This has been uh, very stimulating, and and thank you for giving us such a great insight into um, into how uh, India is viewing viewing these events. Uh, interested listeners can find Professor Rajagopalan's piece on the website of the Print, which is theprint.in, and he is also on Twitter uh, with the handle at r rajagopalan jnu. Uh, Professor, it's been great fun talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to David's Politics Show. If you're enjoying the episodes, I'd be very grateful for a positive rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. This helps other potential listeners find out about the podcast. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long.